Um, the word koan is um, normally translated as public case. Those of you that are familiar with working with koans know that they are um, stories, histories of our ancestry and various different encounters that um, masters in our lineage had with one another. And they usually take on the form of a pointer, um, then the case, the main case, which is the actual encounter or dialogue. Uh, and there's typically a commentary um, and then a verse. The koan today is going to be a little different. This koan is case 316 in the year 2017. Here's the pointer. Miami, Florida. Dallas, Texas. Edmond, Oklahoma. Louisville, Kentucky. Jacksonville, Florida. Iowa City, Iowa. Corpus Christi, Texas. Wakefield, Massachusetts. Columbus, Ohio. Red Lake, Minnesota. Seattle, Washington. Littleton, Colorado. Blacksburg, Virginia. Fort Hood, Texas. Aurora, Colorado. Newtown, Connecticut. Colorado Springs, Colorado. San Bernardino, California. Las Vegas, Nevada. New York City, New York. Sutherland Springs, Texas. The case. A man asked me the other day, please give me a brief description of Zen. I responded, front yard, backyard.
for those who may have recognized the list of names in the pointer, it's just a, a short list of all of the mass murders that occurred between 1982 and 2017. In fact, since August 1st, 1966, when an ex-Marine sniper killed his wife and mother and then climbed 27 stories at the University of Texas and killed 14 more people, there have been 974 victims and 135 shooters from nearly every imaginable race, religion, socioeconomic background, state, and district in this country alone. But this isn't meant to be a talk about the history of gun violence or a polemic against gun laws or for gun laws. There's no political agenda here. There's no philosophical agenda here. What I want to talk about is the underlying fundamental issue that pervades all of this. The one in New York recently hit particularly close to home for me. It was in my front yard, literally. I walk that path every day to and from work. I see the bikers going up and down every day. And so when something like this happens so close, it tends to take on an import that it may not otherwise have. Somehow when things happen a little bit further away or not as near and dear, not as personal, there's a way of somehow being able to objectify or explain away or say, mm, I feel bad for those people, but thank goodness I wasn't there. But when it hits so close to home, it really offers an opportunity to reflect 
in a much more intimate and personal way. Reflect around the suffering of ourselves, of others, around the nature of violence. So it was natural for me, anyway, I, I revisited um, some of the things that we study when we take up this path. The precepts. Precepts are these guiding principles that are meant to help illuminate the way, set up guideposts, help us to navigate. in this world in an ethically responsible way. And so I, I looked back, you know, I, I looked back, the first, the first precept um, is the precept of not killing. And it struck me that this isn't a precept that is unique to Buddhism, it's in virtually every religious, philosophical, ethical tradition that there is, phrased in slightly different ways, but the essence is the same. And so it sort of occurred to me that how can this be? How can it be that this one principle, that is universally accepted, is so rarely followed? And I struggled with that for a while. I went back to um, one of the books that we read um, when we go through these precepts. It's by uh, a Zen Roshi named uh, Reb Anderson. And the book is called Being Upright for any of those that, that are interested who have not yet read it. And I started to read the section on the precept of not killing, but Reb Anderson actually has this section in the beginning that actually is pretty illuminating. It's pretty interesting. And in there, he, he, he says... His intention is not to approach the precepts as rules. These are not rules to be followed, but as ways to realize enlightenment, compassion, 
And he points out this kind of vital interdependence, he calls it, between meditation, zazen, and ethical conduct. And that this is relevant not only to the Zen practitioner, right, but to anybody working in a socially responsible way and committed to a life of compassion. It's accessible to everybody. But he creates this connection at the very beginning between the precepts themselves and the practice. That the precepts without the practice are just rules. But in reality, the two kind of go together. They fit together. They depend on one another. They rely on one another. They reinforce one another. And in the introduction, he actually quotes um, Suzuki Roshi, um, who said, receiving the precepts is a way to help us understand what it means to just sit. It's interesting. It never really, never really occurred to me in that way. So he goes on and he talks about the precepts in, in, in a number of different ways, particularly around this precept of, you know, not killing and what does that mean? But he does it from the point of view of its fundamental nature. that beneath these rules is this fundamental problem. This problem of delusion. And he goes back, constantly kind of goes back to the teaching of Shakyamuni Buddha who dealt a lot with this problem of suffering. Suffering. Hmm. I prefer the, the Sanskrit word there, um, which is dukkha, right? which commonly gets translated as suffering, but it really means unsatisfactoriness or incompleteness that there is a part of our lives that is inherently and always unsatisfactory and that it's our desire to create that satisfaction through hopes, dreams, wishes, likes, dislikes, that creates this fundamental tension and this, this delusion that we have. And that this, this 
unsatisfactoriness is because we don't see reality as it really is. That all things are empty of inherent existence. That things co-arise and are interdependent on one another. We don't see that fundamental reality, and so we slice up reality in infinite ways. And divisive ways. And so I was reflecting on this, on this connection between the ethical guiding principles that most of us hold and the practice that's so essential to keeping those alive and real. That we constantly have to get back to this practice, this sitting, in order for us to effectively realize those principles. In the city, it's, the city is a noisy place. Right. And there are all kinds of things that can distract us from the practice. The bustle, the work, the constant bombardment of advertisements and people. And it's just a noisy place. And when something like this happens, it it does have the power to cut through that and get us to stop and to consider and to confront some of those more essential thoughts, feelings, fears that we all have. The question is, do we do that? Do we create the space for ourselves to do that? There are a multitude of different ways that that can happen. I was, I was reading a New York Times article over the weekend about this young professional who lives in Brooklyn and, and she had all kinds of things going on in her life. Her father was um, diagnosed with leukemia. She just had a three-month-old um, three uh, son. Work was creating all kinds of um, issues. And finally, at the, at, the, um, at the 
not only request, but the urging of her husband, she said, well, I've got I've to get out of here. And she went to Seattle, actually. She went to um, this place called Olympic Park in Seattle. And for the folks that are there in Seattle, you'll know that that is effectively their backyard. And it's um, actually quite beautiful. I, I myself have never been, but I know um, a number of people who live, live there. It stretches down the coast of Washington State um, some 60 miles or so, um, and about 90 miles wide. And it is actually deemed one of the quietest places in the country. There are no airplanes. There are no um, cars. It is, it is lush forest out there. And she has a, a couple of pretty interesting um, reflections in this trip that she took. Right? So um, she says, Before me was nothing but ocean, no ships, no airplanes, no buildings. The, huge, the hugeness of the ocean and nothing but ocean was profound, a silence in its own right. But what's interesting about this is that she essentially confronted the same problem there. She says, hiking alone, I felt like the loudest thing around. I was loud inside too, she says. A cacophony of swirling worries, nagging to-dos, and then beneath all of that, a layer of thoughts I hadn't had time to think about in months. And she asks this question. She says, you know, why, why do we mistake silence for peace? She says, well, silence is peaceful because it reduces stimulation, right? This is why she wanted to get out of the city. Silent places tend to be slower places. But with that silence, all kinds of things rush in. For her, it was her father's illness, her newborn child. For us, it could be something totally different. But their, their worries, nonetheless, their concerns, nonetheless, they're real. She's going through this um, internal dialogue with herself wondering, if silence is so peaceful, why do so many of us choose to live in this busy, noisy, crazy environment? She says, we want silence, but we also want to blot it out. 
And we confuse silence for peace. And then we go a little crazy when we have it. She ends up quoting somebody else who says that silence is the arid interrogation with ourselves over the dread of dying. That's pretty profound. That we're, what we're ultimately called to reflect on is our own impermanence. The fact that everything changes. The fact that there's no way to control that. Just like there's no way to control a madman barreling down a New York City street. And we have all kinds of ways of ducking away from that or covering that or ignoring that. But that is the fundamental principle. That is the essence of what we are trying to realize. So, as I was contemplating these two different sides, I really found myself wondering, is the violence in the streets really any different than the silence in the forest? Or does it emanate from the same place? Does it arise out of the same fundamental delusion? Our own thoughts, our own actions. Are they really different? I'm not sure. I don't think so. But it gets us back to the work. As we used to say, with all of that, how then shall we live? What then shall we do? Do we run for the hills? How do we live in the noise? How do we live with the noise? How do we begin to understand that the noise is not any less it than the silence?
is my front yard any different than their backyard? I don't know. What I do know is what's required. And that is the continual deepening of our practice. The holding firm of that space from which we can see and express reality, undiluted, pure. Because if we can do that, then the precepts are self-guiding. They, they, they are expressed naturally. They emanate from us with ease. And hopefully if we can do some of that, that feeling will pervade all of the things we do, all of the people we interact with. I think we have an opportunity as we are in the midst of the ango, practicing to continue to deepen that understanding, to continue to look at our practice with fresh eyes, always. So, The pointer, I think, is clear. The case, I think, is direct. My commentary, I hope, was useful. The verse Well, the verse is up to you to write. Thank you very much.